myself in their shoes and feel the pain that they're feeling. You know, when uh, I used to have friends who would say, older friends who would say they couldn't watch movies where like a, a child would be dying or where there was child abuse or anything like that, I just thought, oh, that's weird, you know? I can watch it all day. And then I had a kid. And all of a sudden, this silly movie, which shouldn't bother me at all, where I see this kid dying of cancer, has me crying like a baby, asking for somebody to pass the tissue, and I can't hardly take it. And I just can't help but be in this imaginary person's shoes, especially as you see the mo I remember the movie specifically. There was a mother laying on top of her dying daughter, holding her hand as she was dying of cancer. And I just started bawling like a baby, and I thought, what is happening to me? I'm a parent. I'm able to have a new kind of compassion. Jesus has this kind of compassion for the people as he looks at them and he sees their desperate state, their physically desperate state. And Jesus cares about the spiritual needs of the people and so he teaches them. But he really does care about their physical needs. We've been talking a lot about this church, in this church, about prioritizing the spiritual over the physical. But brothers and sisters, you should know that that does not mean that we don't care for the physical. What it simply means is that the spiritual is the most important. If we don't have that taken care of, it does us no good to care about the physical. I mean, if you can testify to the fact that as a church, even with the little that we have, we do much to care for physical need in the life of this church. But here's what I want you to see. Here's what I want you to take away from this. If Jesus never fed these people a single piece of bread. He would have already met their most significant need. He was already satisfying their deepest possible need. If you remember my sermon on the Syrophoenician woman, I talked about how God has a prioritization in his love. He loves Jew and Gentile alike, but there's a prioritization that love goes out to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Well, in the same way, I think that we can say that Jesus wants to meet all of our needs, our physical needs as well as our spiritual needs. But there's clearly a prioritization. Jesus is happy. He delights to meet our physical needs, but his priority is that he meets our spiritual needs above all else. You've heard it said that Jesus doesn't do anything spiritually for someone until he helps them physically. Well, brothers and sisters, it's simply not true. It's a lie. This story proves it. Jesus has been preaching to these people for three days. He lets them get to the point where he's afraid that they're going to pass out on the way home before he finally decides to do something for them physically. Our eternal needs trump our temporal needs. Another way to say that is that Hell is more important than hunger in God's mind. Heaven is more important than bread. And that's why Jesus is content to let these people get to the point of fainting before he feeds them. He wants, he is willing to let them get to a place of deep physical need before he even considers satiating their deep physical need. But there's another aspect of Jesus' compassion in today's text that I think we should see. I don't think that the compassion that Jesus has for these people is just an ordinary compassion. 
I'm not talking about intensity. I've already said I think it's a very intense compassion. But rather, I think that he has a special compassion for them in relation to him. Let's look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. I think that Jesus has compassion on these people, not simply because they're hungry, but because they're hungry in service to him. Not simply because they're hungry, but because they're hungry in service to him. Jesus is concerned with all hunger, to be sure. But those who've sacrificed food, physical food, so that they can be fed spiritually by Jesus, elicit a particular compassion from him. And that should be great solace to us, brothers and sisters. It should be great solace that Jesus has extra compassion on those who suffer for his namesake because he's calling every single one of us to suffer for his namesake. Jesus says things like, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It should be a great comfort to us that Jesus has a particular compassion for us as we serve him and sacrifice for him because sacrificing for him is something that every Christian will do if he belongs to Christ, if she belongs to Christ. If we're willing to hate our own lives, that is, lay them down, die to ourselves, live for Christ, count everything as lost for the sake of knowing him, if we're willing to do that, then we'll be his disciples. And not just his disciples, his children. And Jesus is a good father. He's a father who supplies every need of his child. Even some of the needs that his children don't know that they have. In the Beatitudes, Jesus says this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I think that's, that's what we see today in the text. We see these Gentiles sitting at the feet of Jesus, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, for the righteousness of God, for something better than physical bread. And Jesus says that everyone who has this kind of hunger, that hunger will be met. It will be satisfied. That's his promise to us as his children. He doesn't promise us that we'll always be physically full. He doesn't promise us that our bank accounts will never be in the negative. He doesn't promise us that we'll never be sick. He doesn't promise us that our marriage will be without difficulties. He promises us that if we hunger and thirst for him, we will be filled. And isn't that a better promise? Week in and week out, you see these celebrities who get all these things that they could ever want or need, and all they ever do is talk about how depressing it is and how it doesn't really fulfill them like they thought it would. I just watched a documentary with Jim Carrey where he talks about it as a young man getting three movie deals. He made $10 million. He had all the cars, the money, the women, everything and anything he could ever want in his life. And he was just saddened and shocked by the fact that it did nothing to satisfy him. Isn't the promise to be filled spiritually a better promise than the promise to be filled physically? Physically? 
This is what makes the prosperity gospel so abominable. They're stealing the promises of God from you. And they're teaching you to want lesser things. Is that what you're hungering for? Is that what your thirst is for? Is that the thing that you let your, wet your lips over? The righteousness of God, Jesus Christ, His life? You know, that's one of the main ways that we can actually know that we're a Christian. The Bible is clear to tell us that many people who think that they're Christians are not Christians. But it also tells us that we can have assurance. And it tells us that one of the ways that we can know that we actually belong to Jesus Christ is if we thirst for Christ, if we hunger for Christ. I know that on a second-by-second -second basis, or on a minute-by-minute -minute basis, or on an hour-by-hour -hour basis, on a day-by-day -day basis, you're probably like me. If we were to look at, look at it on that scale, we would probably see that our desires fluctuate. Sometimes we want Jesus a whole lot more. Sometimes we want Jesus a whole lot less. What if you zoom out? What if you don't look at the last couple of seconds, or the last couple of minutes, or the last couple of hours, or the last couple of days? What about the last month, the last year, the last five years? What's the trajectory there? Do you hunger for Christ more now than you did? Well, so, brother and sister, I think you have good reason to be assured that you belong to him. But if you find yourself increasingly hungering for the things of this world, if you're chasing physical bread that will be consumed now and emptied out an hour later over the spiritual bread that will leave you satisfied for eternity, if that's where your desires are, I don't know. I don't know. One of the ways that you see this worldly hunger played out in front of your eyes all the time is in the life of many church, local churches. People go church shopping and rather than asking, does this church faithfully preach the gospel and all the truth therein? People ask questions like, what kind of programs do you have? What kind of clothes does the pastor wear? How long is service again? An hour and a half? I'd like to be out in an hour. People ask questions like, is that music the kind of music that I really want most? Are these people going to be looking like me and dressing like me and talking like me and be in the same socioeconomic status as me? Can my bubble perfectly fit with their bubble? They ask those kind of questions rather than asking, is this the kind of church where the gospel is faithfully preached? Is this the kind of church where Christ is exalted? Is this the kind of God, church that takes sin seriously and tries to exterminate it and pursue holiness together? You see this all the time in relationships. Rather than looking for the most godly husband or wife, young people oftentimes look for the person who has the best hair or the nicest body or you know, the best career or the most money or who will do this for me or that for me. And they're just looking at the wrong things. Rather than saying, is this person going to help me get to heaven? They th think things like, is this person going to help me live comfortably? 
as we look at the examples of these Gentiles hungering and thirsting for Jesus Christ, for the eternal bread of life that he offers, at the cost of physical bread, I think we all should feel the tinge of conviction. And I think that that's right. I think it's okay. It's okay to be convicted. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We probably need to repent of some of this stuff that we're seeing in the text today. We probably need to repent of the way that we hunger for the things of the world and fail to hunger for the things of Jesus Christ. For the way that we all too easily sit down on Facebook rather than opening up our Bibles. For the way that we pull out our smartphones rather than have conversations with human beings who are sitting in front of us. For the way that we run off to people in the world rather than spending time with our brothers and sisters in Christ in this local church. Maybe Jesus is calling us to sacrifice some of our present physical comforts in order to do us some eternal good. That sounds like something he would do. Now let's turn from the crowd for a second and turn to the disciples. One of the reformers, in his commentary on this section, wrote this. Quote, the disciples manifest excessive stupidity in not remembering the earlier proof of the power and grace of Christ. What he's referring to here is the disciples' seeming ability to forget the fact that Jesus had just fed 5,000 plus people. And now he's, yeah. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. And if I send them away hungry to their homes... They will faint on the way, and some of them have come from very far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? You see, they had forgotten. Is stupid too harsh of a word here? I don't think so. I don't think it's excessively harsh. They've already seen Jesus feed 5,000 plus people. And now that he wants to feed 4,000 people, they wonder if he can get the job done. One of the reasons why I don't think it's excessively harsh is because I think it's perfectly acceptable to say that about me. As we look at these stories, the story of the disciples being quick to forget Jesus' miracle-working power, we can feel comfortable in judging them as long as we're quick to judge ourselves, as long as we're quick to see ourselves in the disciples. Now, some of the commentators... They see this and they think there's no way the disciples could have forgotten that quickly. There's just no way they could have. Well, I think if some of these commentators spent less time looking in their Greek New Testaments and their old dusty books, and if they lifted their gaze and spent more time looking in the mirror and at other sinners around them, it would not be that hard to believe that the disciples could be so quick to forget about the power of Jesus. Consider Israel in the Old Testament which the twelve disciples represent in many ways. God rescued his people from the terrors of slavery in Egypt. They were crying out to him, God, remember your covenant with us. Rescue us. Save us. And he did. And before they could even blink, they began to forget. They started saying things like this. Oh, that we had food to eat. 
Remember the fish we ate in Egypt? It cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. And then they said, Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Finally, they say, And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They had forgotten the devastation, the suffering that they endured as slaves in Egypt. They had just forgotten it. They forgot the wonder-working power of God that rescued them from being slaves in Egypt. They forgot the way that God sent plagues on on the Egyptians. They forgot the way that God parted the Red Sea and let them pass and then brought it back crashing down on their enemies. What's really amazing is that they had forgotten something that was still presently happening to them. Namely, the cloud and the fire was leading them by day and by night. They'd grown blind to it. Moses was only on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments for a little over a month. And when he came back down, the people had built a golden calf and were worshiping it and saying, This is the God that brought us out of Egypt. It took 40 days for the Israelites to worship a different God because they had forgotten the God who had rescued them by the power of his might. But friends, God was not caught off guard by their forgetfulness. God knows. When you sin, you're not like catching God by surprise. It's not like he thought like, oh man, I thought you were different. I thought you were the one to not really mess this up. He even built it into their lives that they would not forget. Deuteronomy 4.9, he tells his people this. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. You see, God is telling them. He's saying, listen, I know you're going to forget. I know you're going to get distracted. I know you're going to keep your eyes focused on this world and on your present circumstances, and you're going to forget what I've done for you. But don't forget. Keep your soul diligently. You need to be talking about these things, meditating on these things, thinking on these things, singing about these things, praying these things, reciting them back and forth to one another. Aren't we so quick to forget? Maybe you're financially strapped right now. And you you wonder how you're going to kind of get out of this one. God's taken care of you before. You serve the God who spoke the world into existence. Quasars and galaxies, raising mountains high, laying valleys low. Your light bill is going to be okay. Maybe you're going through something in your marriage and you just feel like, you know what, there's just something different about what's going on right now. I just don't know how we're going to make it through this. Don't forget about the power of God. He raises dead men to life. He can fix your marriage. We are so quick to forget God's past provision. 
we forget the power that he's worked in our lives time and time and time again. That's one of the reasons why when we have our members meeting, which we will be having Sunday the 10th, 5.30, one of the reasons why I like to have people come up and share their testimonies is so that we're constantly recounting the grace of God in our lives. We're rehearsing his goodness and his power to save in the life of this church. We can't forget it. That's one of the reasons why if you ever come over to my house for dinner and you've never been there before, one of the first things I'm going to do is say, hey, can I share my testimony with you? And hey, can you share your testimony with me? Because I don't want us to forget. Because we will. And I don't ever want to forget. And I don't want to turn from the God who saved me. And I don't want that for you either. I don't want that for this church. Our sinful tendency to forget the power of God doesn't catch God off guard. One of the ways that he built this into the life of the Old Covenant was through the celebration of the Passover. He said, here's what I want you to do. Every year, I want you to have this meal, and I want you to talk about the way that I saved you. So that you don't forget every single year. This is what he says. This day shall be for you a memorial Remember, memory. It will be a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Not just this generation. See, that's what we do. The first generation gets it, right? We get rescued. We get saved. God, yes. The second generation assumes it. And then the third generation loses it. Later in the New Testament, Jesus commanded his disciples to break bread and to drink wine. When he gave his reason for that, he says, Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So brothers and sisters, when we have the members meeting and we vote on the church covenant, if it passes, we will, for the first time since I've been the pastor of this church, celebrate the Lord's Supper together. It's going to be so sweet. I'd encourage you to be here for and what we're going to do together is we're going to remember the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done to save us from our sins. If you're not a member of a church, you don't get to partake in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is for those who have repented of their sins and trusted in Christ and have joined themselves together with the body of Christ. I want you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. If you have any questions about that, find me or Grant or Michael or one of the elders afterwards, and we'd love to talk with you about it. One of the reasons why God commands his people to gather regularly, like weekly, is because of how quickly we forget. That's one of the reasons why I love Wednesday night service. I know from Sunday to Sunday people are prone to forget. Wednesday night we get a little booster shot, a little injection there that helps us to be encouraged until we get to Sunday. Because life is hard. This world has fallen. People on our jobs aren't Christians. And he says, gather together. Hebrews tells us that one of the reasons that we gather together regularly is so that we can stir up one another to good works. As we're meant to stoke each other's fire. Well, how come? Because the fire dies down. And every single week we come back together, whether we're singing God's word or praying God's word or hearing God's word spoken or having God's word preached to us, God is taking, 
actually, I don't know what it's called. The thing that blows the air into the fire? You know what I'm talking about. Huh? Okay. Every single week, God's word is blowing oxygen into the, to the embers that are dying out and blowing them back into flames. I love the size of our church. We get to do things like that. We preach the gospel in this church every week because we know that we're prone to forget it. There's a quote ascribed to Martin Luther. I don't think he actually said it, but I'm just going to roll with it because it's really good. They asked Martin Luther, some of the members of his congregation, why do you preach the gospel to us week after week? And Luther replied, because week after week you forget it. Why do we preach the gospel to ourselves? Because we are so prone to forget it. Is it stupid of the disciples to forget about the wonder-working power of Jesus? Yes, absolutely it is. Should we be surprised by it? No, we should not. Should we think that we'd do any different if we were in that situation? I, again, I'd say no. We should be able to identify with the disciples and enter into their sins the same way that Jesus identifies with us and enters into our sins. One of the reasons that Jesus can identify with the people who are at the point of fainting is because he himself would soon be at the point of fainting. He would find himself doubled over in agony, suffering, hungry, lacking sustenance. The people who would soon faint by Jesus were eventually fed by Jesus. But Jesus would soon be cut off from the one who eternally sustained him. As the people were with Jesus three days receiving the life that he was offering them, Christ would be in the tomb for three days, cut off from the land of the living. The crowd was willing to sacrifice their earthly comforts for the sake of Jesus, but Jesus was willing to sacrifice his life for our eternal comfort. Do you know that? Do you know that Jesus experienced the deepest hunger that any human being could ever know? And he experienced that for you? Do you know that he suffered physically and spiritually for you? He suffered that so that you would never have to? In today's story, Jesus broke bread to feed those who were seeking him. But at the cross, Jesus' body was broken like bread to feed those who didn't even know that they needed him. Maybe you're like the disciples. and Maybe you fail to comprehend Jesus' power to feed. But don't be ignorant anymore, friends. You've heard the truth today. I'm telling you, here and now, Jesus can feed you. But he only feeds people who recognize that they need to be fed. He only feeds the hungry. Maybe you think you have all the bread you could ever need. You think you're okay with God. You think that coming to this church, praying prayers, giving money, you don't, you don't really need any bread from Jesus. But friend, you do. 
and he can feed your soul. In today's account, we see that after Jesus has fed these people physically, it says they were satisfied. You can be satisfied. Don't you want to be satisfied? Aren't you tired of hungering and thirsting for things that never ultimately satisfy you? Aren't you tired of chasing the things of this world? Aren't you tired of going after that which makes you feel good for an instant and then it's gone immediately? The high is there and then it's gone and all you feel is sick and terrible? Aren't you tired of chasing shallow love which is just a flash in the pan? Wouldn't you rather have deep, maturing love that lasts a lifetime? Aren't you tired of chasing quick thrills instead of enduring pleasures? Well, then feast on Christ. Feast on Christ. He has more than enough bread to offer. Whether he's feeding 2,000, 3,000, 5,000, 10,000, Jesus has enough. That's one of the things that I love about these stories. He's the God of the universe. He flung creation into, exist with his, into existence with his pinky. When you start to understand and believe Genesis 1, then none of these miracles are that hard to grasp. He has enough bread for you. There's no one in this room that Jesus looks at and says, oh, I don't think I have enough to feed you. I don't think I have enough to satisfy you. So take the bread of life, broken for you. Take it and eat it and savor it and be satisfied by it. Let's pray. Father, help us to feast on your son, Jesus Christ.